All right, I know it's a, an honor to be asked to give the St. Thomas, Thomas Day Lecture. Uh, for me, it's a particular honor, I guess, because in the uh, Dominican Order, of which I'm a third uh, order member, um, you take a name, my name is Thomas Aquinas. So today you get a lecture from Thomas Aquinas himself. Um, it's pretty much a poor man's version, but there it is. I suppose it's, well, I guess you have to judge whether it's better than nothing. Um, in any case, I, I do appreciate being asked to uh, give this lecture. Uh, as Dr. Goyet said, I want to talk about the order of learning and why in particular we need to study uh, natural philosophy before we study metaphysics. Um, that's a position that is held traditionally, but there has been in the 20th century a lot of uh, um, debate about that. And there are various views, various people who think it's not true that you have to study natural philosophy first. Um, and the reasons they give are pretty various. Their, their takes on how you should proceed are fairly various. But um, I'm going to try to uh, gather them together in a way by seeing uh, only certain possible ways and then showing that of those possible ways, only one is real, uh, and that's the one I propose, <clears throat> which I think is the traditional reading. And that, that position is that you need to study natural philosophy before you study uh, metaphysics, because if you don't do so, you don't even know that there's such a subject as metaphysics. So I want to show that uh, that's what I mean when I, in the title, by the ground of metaphysics. Um, I mean, uh, you, you can mean a lot of different things by that. In particular, though, what I mean is um, uh, that proposition without which metaphysics can't get, on the gr can't get off the ground. Um, no pun intended on the title. Um, okay, so in order to do that, um, uh, we need two preliminaries. And the two preliminaries are that science is an assimilation to reality, and secondly, that sciences are divided by their modes of definition. So that's going to be the first part of the lecture, will be to try to explain both of those. And the second part will be to try to show that uh, it's not possible to attain the beginning of metaphysics um, otherwise than through natural philosophy, because you will fail to meet one of these preliminaries. So the first preliminary is that science is about what's real. Oops, I don't want to skip that page. There we go. So what then is science? First and foremost, science is a sort of assimilation of the mind to reality. When I know what a triangle is, in some way my mind must be assimilated to the nature triangle, and triangle must be in me in some way, for the activity of knowing it is in my mind. We say, I have it in mind when we know something. In the De Anima, Aristotle notes that Empedocles thought the soul was made out of four elements because like is known by like. He, that's Empedocles, thought that if we know a horse, we must have in us something like a horse or something of the horse. And he thought that the elements would do the trick since they're the principles of the horse, I guess. He thought that if you have the principles, you might be able to know the things that are from the principles as well as knowing the principles. So he hit upon the idea that the soul is made out of earth, air, fire, and water because those are the principles of all things. And like is known by like, so they have to be in the soul if the soul is going to know those things. So uh, Aristotle shows that his position can't be right because it implies that we have things in our minds in just the same way they are in reality, as if when I know a horse, I actually have a horse in my head. 
uh, that doesn't seem a plausible position, and Aristotle doesn't really try to show it's false. He just says it's ridiculous. Um, so, uh, but he does uh, think, I think, I, I think that Empedocles is right, that the thing known must in some way be reproduced in our mind and our senses. If we do know things, we know them by having them in our minds. Um, and so although you can't have an actual horse in your mind, uh, you have to have something like a horse in your mind when you know what a horse is or know something about a horse. So since uh, thinking and sensing are acts that take place within us, the objects of thought and sensations must be in our minds in some way and our senses in some way. Um, that's what I'm calling assimilation. The, the mind has to be assimilated to reality. It has to become like the thing it knows in some way. So to what do we come, become assimilated when we know? If we know, we know something true. That is, our minds reflect what's real. Truth, says St. Thomas, is a correspondence between the mind and reality. Consequently, science is a grasp of some real thing, not just of a nothing or a fiction or a fantasy. We don't have science about things that are not real in any way. But now we have to clarify, because things can be real in different senses and not all of them are required for knowledge. We might think that if knowledge is of what's real, dodo birds and dinosaurs cannot be objects of knowledge. And though there may be reasons that that's true, maybe, I don't think it's true, but suppose one might say that, uh, there may be reasons that's true, it isn't because they're not real in the sense of actually existing right now outside my mind. That's not a reason to say you can't know something. If all squares were erased from the world, that wouldn't change the science of geometry. The fact that squares do or don't exist in sensible reality is not something that bears on the science of geometry. So you make a mistake if you think you have to test your geometry by seeing whether or not it matches with the stuff you see. Uh, it'd be a bit surprising if it didn't match it anyway, but that's not, not, uh, not necessary. I don't think that it, that it match. Okay, so anyway, um, so even if all these uh, squares were erased, uh, that wouldn't shake our confidence that there's such a thing as the science of squares. And so too, we can have a knowledge of an extinct species like dodo birds. Um, the fact that they have gone extinct uh, doesn't stop us from knowing something about them because we, they leave traces, they leave bones and DNA, whatever. Uh, and so we can argue from that to the idea that there are these things someplace. Um, so even though knowledge must be of what's real, it doesn't have to be of what exists in the real world right now, or even of what did exist in the world or what will exist in the world. On the other hand, if the objects of knowledge need not be a thing in the natural world, still less can it be just a fiction. We have a poetics that deals with fiction, Aristotle's poetics, for example. Um, but that's because, uh, and there's a that's a kind of science or an art or something, uh, some kind of discipline. Um, but that's uh, possible because fiction is some kind of thing that exists outside the world and has real principles. There's, there you can say true things about it. Um, there's a way you should write poetry and a way you shouldn't. So, so there can be a there can be a science of fiction or a knowledge of fiction anyway. Um, but we don't have particular fi uh, knowledge about particular fiction. So, you don't have a knowledge, for example. There's no science of hobbits. Um, that's something I pr probably don't want to tell Mr. Seely that. But, um, <laughs> Don't want to disappoint him. Um, but um, 
so there's no science of the particular fictions, but there is a science of what fiction is. And it doesn't really make any difference to my point whether the, uh, whether the um, error or the fiction is deliberate or not. In other words, Tolkien makes up hobbits you know, on purpose. Um, the guys who made up phlogiston weren't doing that on purpose. They thought they were right. Um, they were just wrong. There's no science of phlogiston, right? So it's not, it doesn't really ma matter that they didn't realize they were wrong. Um, the fact is you can't have a science of something that isn't even a real nature, right? So we can be deceived, though, into thinking that we have knowledge in such cases in at least two ways. First of all, the simpler way, we may simply think that we have, in fact, uh, experience the thing, so somebody might think they actually saw a ghost, right? And they might think, oh, ghosts must be real because I just saw one. Um, that's a less interesting problem. Um, the more interesting case is this. We may think that we can make true if-then statements about a thing, and, and if so, we have a sort of knowledge of it. We might think we've said something true when we say if angels exist, they have intellects. In fact, we've said something true, but not properly speaking about angels, we have said something true about the relation of the antecedent, if angels exist, and the consequent, they have intellects. To use St. Thomas's example, if men are asses, men are irrational. This is a true statement, despite the fact that both the antecedent and the consequent are not only false, but absurd. Uh, and I realize some of the young ladies here may disagree, um, <laughs> but that's not my point. <laughs> The truth of such statements is not about anything in the world. It's not about men or asses. It's only about the relation between the antecedent and the consequent, about a being of reason, namely the logical connection between the parts of the sentence. We could easily form as many such sentences as we please. If wishes were horses, beggars would ride. If the moon is made of cheese, it's edible. No one would think we've discovered an easy and royal road to science through these kinds of statements. But you still might think that you're learning something when you have those kinds of statements. You might think, you can, might imagine something and, and think, well, if that thing existed, it would be like this, and think that you're actually getting somewhere in terms of science, but it seems to me you're not, because you're not assimilating to reality. There's no thing out there that you're talking about. So when we study something which is a self-contradiction, whether the greatest prime number or phlogiston, that's the best we can do, namely recognize what a thing what would be true if something absurd could be true? If I say there's a greatest, if there's a greatest prime number, it's odd, right? Uh, the sentence is in a sense true, uh, but there's no such thing as a greatest prime number. So it's not a, a statement that's scientific. Uh, they do not express in a, su such sentences do not express an assimilation to anything real, except the connection between the antecedent and the consequent. If on the other hand, we know that the antecedent is true and its subject real, we're in a different situation, for then we know that there is a thing to which we are assimilated and about which the consequence is true. If an angel appeared to me in such a way that I somehow knew it was not physical, but an immaterial being, then I could prove, using an argument that St. Thomas provides, that it is intellectual. I would thereby be assimilated to a real being and have a piece of real knowledge about it. So science is about a thing, the reality of which is not quite up to the solid reality of the physical world, and not quite so unreal as the unreality of the merely imagined or invented. So what is that kind of real? Perhaps the best clue is the fact we've already noted that the knowledge of geometry is possessed even though we don't know that the objects of geometry can exist in the real world. 
we don't know that there are real squares in the world because you could never, to judge that, you would have to have uh, a measurement, right? You have to be able to measure that the sides are exactly equal and the angles are exactly right angles, but we can't do that. So we can't really know uh, by sense, by the, the judgment of sense, that there's uh, such a thing as a square in the world. But nevertheless, we do know that squares are possible, and we know that because Euclid proves it. Um, and he proves it based on something else that he knows to be possible, namely the existence of circles, straight lines, and points, and the conclusions that he draws earlier in the, in the um, book one. So I think the proof of the, uh, the construction of the square is Prop 44, I think. Um, and uh, he uses a bunch of different proofs to show that he's in book one to show that there are such things. Um, yeah, so, so uh, maybe an easier example to see that you really need to prove the thing exists is the dodecahedron or any of the regular solids. Uh, they're pretty complicated. It's not really clear that they're possible. And in fact, some of the things that you might have thought are possible are proven not to be possible, like a 17-sided regular solid. There's no such thing. Um, that's a, was a surprise to me as a freshman, anyway. Um, I had imagined that you could have any number of solids of any shape, of perfect solids, too. Um, okay, so uh, so what is it that we're, what's the reality we're talking about then? It's not the reality that the thing is out there in the physical world, it's the reality that there's such a kind of thing, that the, that kind of thing is a possible thing, it's a real nature. Right? There's such a thing as a square, and there's such a thing as a dodecahedron, there's such a thing as a dodo bird, even if they don't actually exist right now. We know those effects are real, we know they're possible, since we know they're possible, we know that their causes are possible. And in fact, we can say that if the effects are real, like dodo birds really did exist, then their causes must have been real too. Not real even in the sense of existing in the, whole, in the uh, exterior world. Um, okay, so because science is an assimilation to reality, I cannot have a science of an absurdity, whether I recognize it to be such or not, for there would be nothing to be assimilated to self-contradiction being about as non-existent as anything can be. To push on a little farther, neither can I have signs of what is possible but not known to be possible. In this case, my mind is not linked to any reality except according to belief or prejudice or a mere guess. Until I prove, for example, that a dodecahedron is a real possibility rather than something about which I simply do not see the impossibility, I don't have a science about it but only true opinion. I don't think anybody would fuss with the idea that science and true opinion are different. So it remains that to have a science we have to know we have a subject which is an intrinsically possible nature. And we might wonder, well, how do you do that? How do you know it's possible? Um, well, there's more than one way. But one way that you can't do it is by, seeing a, by failing to see a contradiction. So sometimes people fall into that trap. So it's important to note, we certainly cannot conclude from our not seeing a contradiction that there is no contradiction in a proposed subject. A neophyte arithmetician might think there can be a 17-sided regular solid or a greatest prime number, but his failure to see the latent contradiction in these concepts is no basis for saying there is no contradiction, or worse, that the 17-sided regular solids and the great, greatest prime numbers are really possible and so are just fine subjects for science. In, pr in practical affairs, where events may press us to make judgments without having all the facts at our disposal, we're often forced to say something like, I see no reason not to do this. I see no objection. But that's not a sufficient reason to have science. In science, you, you have to have more than that, it seems to me. Um, so we often hear people say things like that. You say, 
uh, I don't see why this or that can't be true, and then they go on as if it is true, and that might be helpful dialectically or something, but that can't be a scientific ground, a ground for scientific knowledge. Um, so, ignorance is not bliss, and not seeing a contradiction is not the same as seeing that there is no contradiction. So that's, that's a reason you can't use. The reason, how can you know that things are possible, as nature is possible? Well, you can simply have a direct experience of the thing, like, like dogs, we know that dogs exist because we see them running around. Uh, or you can start from what you see and know to be possible and argue to other things that uh, are necessarily connected to them as properties, principles, causes, effects, etc. For example, from the observed, and so really possible, redshift of the stars, we conclude, according to the astronomers, uh, to its cause, the expansion of the universe. We know that the redshift occurs because we see it. And then we have a theory about how it works. Whether that's science or not is a different question, but at least that's a kind of argument you could give. Um, likewise, Euclid knows that a circle can be drawn because he can do it, uh, perhaps only in his imagination, but that's enough. And using this and other principles which are self-evident, he eventually argues that there is, in fact, such a thing as a dodecahedron. Without either being directly faced with the reality of the thing or else proving that the thing must be real, given something else which is real, and we know to be real because we've seen it, we cannot know that the things we hope to study are anything other than chimeras. Otherwise, we risk giving to airy nothingness and a, uh, to airy nothing a local habitation and a name, which is a task more appropriate for the poet than the philosopher. So in essence, what I've been arguing is that science cannot be based on a mere quid nominis or a definition of a name. I can certainly impose a name on any series of words, including those which involve self-contradiction. I can insist that a blitrig is a square circle. But such a merely no nominal definition cannot of itself be the basis of science. If the, if, or if the nominal definition should express something self-contradictory, there will be no science of that subject. And unless I know that the thing named I've, exists, either by experience or by some inference from experience, I do not know that my quid nominis does not harbor a latent contradiction. The mere fact that I have not seen that it does harbor such a contradiction is not a ground sufficient to say that it does not. For this reason, the question an est, or whether it is, precedes the question quid est in science, as St. Thomas says, and this is a quote, for because there is no quiddity or essence of a non-being, no one is able to know the what it is about what does not exist but one is able to know the signification of the name or the notion composed from many names, just as one is able to know what this name, goat stag, signifies, because it signifies a certain animal composed from a goat and a stag. But it is impossible to know the what it is of a goat stag because there's no such thing in rerum natura. That this is why Aristotle argues that to have science, we must know both that the subject exists and what it is, and knowing and that knowing that it is comes first, and why St. Thomas says, it is vain to seek what a thing is if one does not know that it is. It is true that the signification of the name is needed. Without it, we would not even know what we're talking about or whether we found it to exist. But only when that existence is established are we sure that there really is something there to be understood, that we are not just off on a wild goose chase. So the first preliminary that I wanted to bring up is this one, that science is about things which are real in the sense I've been discussing and which are known to be such. So both they are actually possible and you know it are necessary for science.
So the second preliminary I wanted to bring up are the modes of definition of the sciences. Three sciences, according to St. Thomas, mathematics, natural philosophy, and metaphysics, uh, discounting uh, practical sciences. Right? And uh, logic, he leaves that out too. So uh, second preliminary we have to consider is how to define the sciences, or more approximately, how to define metaphysics. Since metaphysics is a science, and generally the genus is a good starting place for giving a definition, I want to start with the um, genus of metaphysics, which is science. So what is that? Science in the Aristotelian sense amounts to a knowledge embodied in a syllogism or a series of syllogisms, the first premises of which are self-evident principles. A syllogism has a middle term, and in science the middle term is the definition of the subject. We proceed to a scientific understanding of mobile being, for example, from the definition of what is formal in the notion of mobile being, namely motion or change. We have the science of triangles based on the definition of triangle. And that, that definition becomes a middle term in our syllogism. That is, we use it to show that some property belongs to the subject as such. In distinguishing the sciences from each other, St. Thomas argues that sciences should be divided by the sorts of definitions they give. And then why is that? Well, because the definition expresses the intelligibility of the subject. It expresses how knowable it is. So if it's knowable in a different way, you'll have a different science about it. Um, so the intelligibility of the subject is reflected in the sort of definition we can give of it. You might wonder how you can have different definitions or different degrees of intelligibility in a definition. It seems it either says what the thing is or it doesn't, uh, and that's true. But um, the reason, I think, is that uh, some things are just not as de easily defined as others. So for example, the definition of a triangle is a three-sided plane figure, and that's intrinsically more intelligible than the definition of motion, which is the act of the potential as such. You can easily, I think, see that one of those is more intelligible than the other one. Um, now, uh, they're both, I think, proper definitions of their subjects. I think they're both good definitions. You're not going to find better definitions of either one of those. Nevertheless, one of them is, is more intelligible than the other one. So it isn't, it isn't a matter of one of the definitions being less intelligible because it's wrong or because it's mixed up or something. But it's just not the thing you're talking about. It's not the kind of thing that's so intelligible. The difference uh, is in the difference in the things you're trying to define, an abstract mathematical being or a concrete physical being, uh, becoming even. The one is removed from matter and motion, the other is mired in matter and is motion. We should consider here a little more than the different ways that matter and motion can be involved in the definition of a thing, since these determine the intelligibility of the subjects. So first, I'm going to use two arguments that uh, degrees of intelligibility are to be aligned with degrees of removal from matter. I'll try to say something about what that means. Uh, and I'll give two arguments um, following St. Thomas and the De Trinitate commentary. One is based uh, on the nature of the mind and the other is based on the nature of the habit, of the habit, the intellectual habit we call science. So first, because the human mind is immaterial, its object must be in some way immaterial. When I know what man is, I know this universally, that is, without the individuating principle of matter. To know man, I must know that man is a material thing, that he's made of flesh and bones. But I do not, and even cannot know, with my mind, the individual flesh and bone that constitutes Socrates. There's no definition of the, of the bones of Socrates. There's no definition of his particular, his particular flesh. Uh, and those don't enter into the definition if they, of man. If they did, then every man would be so Socrates, I guess. Um, that would be a problem. So, uh, so we do draw out, though, from the, from the thing in front of us, 
common matter. So we do define man with flesh and bone, but not with this, and fle this flesh and this bone. So we, uh, we leave flesh and bone in general in our definition. We leave aside individuating matter, as we put it, this flesh and this bone. Um, this removal from matter is due to the nature of my mind, not to the nature of man. Man, as it exists outside my mind, is always individual. In my mind, it's always universal. Well, that can't be because of the nature of the man, because man, as it exists in the world, is always individual. So it must be due to the nature of my mind. It's because my mind is the way it is that I know things universally. OK, and so since the human mind receives even material things in this immaterial way, it must be itself immaterial. The immateriality must be due to the mind and not to the object. And so from the point of view of the power of the mind, things are intelligible to the extent that they're removed from matter. Secondly, so this is the other argument that I mentioned from the notion of the habit of science. Secondly, we can look at the subject which we know by the particular kind of knowing called science. Aristotle argues that we only have a science of necessary things, and St. Thomas follows suit. If a thing could be otherwise, my claims about it could become false without my their having changed. If Socrates is seated, and I think he's seated, I'm right, but if he stands up, I'm wrong if I keep thinking that he's seated. And the problem is I haven't, I haven't changed my mind. I should have changed my mind, and I didn't. Um, so uh, if science is to be a stable knowledge, to, to, to be true always, then it's going to have to be about things that can't be otherwise, or in other words, about things that are necessary. But what is in motion is, to that extent, not necessary but changeable, and therefore not a fit subject for science. Since then, things are objects of speculative science insofar as they're without matter in motion. And the divisions of sciences should not be made on just any basis, but on the basis of what belongs to the sciences as such. St. Thomas concludes that, quote, speculative sciences are distinguished according to the order of remotion from matter and motion. It's useful, I think, to think a little bit more about what remotion means here. So remotio is the Latin. And it might be translated removal. Uh, so the sense is that when we think of an object, we think of it without the matter that is somehow conjoined with that object in reality. This is, properly speaking, what abstraction from matter means. In the case, uh, at least that's true in Latin. The Greek word is different, but anyway. Uh, in the case of natural sciences, we think of things like man or electron, and we treat them universally, not as individuals. There's no science of Socrates or of this particular electron. There's only a science of man or electron in general. But in order to think of man in general, we have to think of flesh and bones, that is, a kind of matter. So we abstract only from particular material, this flesh and these bones, in which the natures we are concerned with actually exist, but not from flesh and bones in general. The material from which we abstract is in natural science is called individual sensible matter. And um, it's called individual because it belongs to this one man, for example, and not to man in general. And it's called sensible because we are aware of it through a sensible perceptible properties like hardness and coldness, uh, coldness, colors, and so on. And yet in natural science, we must retain what is referred to as common sensible matter, even if we're abstracting from the individual matter. Um, uh, we cannot think of man except as composed of flesh and bone. So our general consideration of man still has to look toward a sort of matter, uh, which St. Thomas calls common matter. OK, so that's about natural philosophy and, and about the remo removal from matter that you find in natural philosophy. Now I'm going to talk about math. The things we deal with in mathematics are likewise abstracted or removed from matter, but in a different way. 
First, we remove from our consideration sensible qualities. We're not concerned as to whether our triangles are hard or soft, or whether they're bronze or plastic. And you imagine a sphere in, in Euclid, it doesn't, you don't have to hold it up, right? It, it, just, it just has no, no sensible property. It doesn't do anything of itself. Um, by removing from our consideration sensible qualities, we also remove from consideration sensible matter, since sensible matter is matter as subject to sensible qualities. Unlike natural science, mathematics has no concern with the world of sensation. We proceed incorrectly if we think our mathematics is to be judged by how it lines up with the sensible world. In this, mathematics and natural philosophy differ, but the two sciences are alike in that we retain something like matter in both cases. St. Thomas calls the matter in mathematics intelligible matter. For example, a triangle, uh, since it's a shape, and a shape is in the genus quality, uh, is an accident, right? Um, it has to exist in a substance. But the substance, which is a sort of material then for the shape, is not defined with sensible qualities like hot and cold. So we, we don't consider the matter of mathematical things as subject to sensible qualities. And so we're removing those sensible qualities from our consideration, we're still left with something material. A sign of that, by the way, or maybe a proof of it. At least a sign of that is that you can have two triangles in different places, right? You can't have multitude without matter. So. Uh, so there's some kind of matter there, but you're not thinking of it as being uh, subject to sensible qualities. So then we don't call it sensible matter. We call it intelligible matter because we can still think of it. So, uh, so in mathematics, we still also have universal and particular, both the universal nature of triangle and particular triangles. So mathematics, like natural philosophy, is about the universal and necessary natures abstracted from particular matter but the mathematical objects are more abstract or more removed from matter since they also leave behind not just individuating matter, but uh, also sensible matter. The case of mathematics, uh, excuse me, metaphysics, is in a way a little easier to grasp and especially that of mathematics, which I think is kind of hard. There are some things, the definitions of which include no matter at all, neither sensible nor intelligible, neither common nor individuating. God and angels are purely spiritual beings and neither exist in or are defined by matter. So too, being and one are found not only in material and mathematical things, but even in these immaterial things. Though being and one can exist in material things, they also exist outside material things. Consequently, being and one can be defined without sensible or intelligible matter. But there is a difference in the way uh, metaphysics is removed from matter and the way the other two sciences are. In math and natural philosophy, we ignore the world in which our objects really do exist. We do not address the existence of mathematical objects in the material world one way or the other. We just ignore it. So you see that in freshman year, right? Every, every freshman class starts with a couple of days when everyone's fighting about how we know these things exist and three weeks later, nobody cares. Um, and that's because you start, you just start recognizing that you're talking about something true even if you don't quite know how you're doing it, right? It might be hard to understand how that happens, but that it happens is pretty clear. Um, so let's see. Uh, so too, we do not address the way physical things exist in particular instances, but sticking to universal claims in natural philosophy, we ignore particular matter in its particularity. But in metaphysics, we don't just ignore the matter, we actually deny it. We say that our objects really are, or at least can be, without matter. For this reason, St. Thomas will speak of the removal of matter in metaphysics as a separation or a negative judgment. In other words, a statement of the form B is not A. 
Um, that's what he means by separation or negative judgment. We will, in other words, actually deny materiality of our subjects. We will say God is not material, angels are not material, the human soul is not material. We won't just say uh, mathematical things. Maybe they're in matter, maybe they're not. I don't care, I'm doing my math. Um, you just ignore it in math. Um, so we will, in other words, uh, deny the materiality of our objects, whereas in the other sciences, we will simply not consider the matter from which we abstract. So to return to the main point, uh, from the point of view of the power of knowing, namely the mind, as well as from the point of view of the thing known, namely the subject of science, we come to the same conclusion that sciences are what they are by remotion or removal from matter. Physics considers the natures of mobile things, but not their individual matter. Mathematics considers natures which are found in matter, but are defined without sensible matter. And metaphysics considers natures which are not defined with matter, and which are either may or do not exist without matter. Since we should divide things by differences which are essential to them, and sciences are what they are by removal from matter, we should divide the sciences by how they are more or less remote from matter. And we should take here now particular note, this will come up in a minute, you'll see why it's important. Um, we should take particular note that the division of the sciences is not ter in terms of mere generality. Just as there are particular plants which share the nature of plant, so there are particular triangles which share the nature of triangle. And just as biology is about the kind of thing a plant is, an abstraction from individual plants, so mathematics is about the kind of thing a triangle is, an abstraction from individual triangles. Nor are mathematics and natural science distinct because one is more universal than the other. Mathematics is not more universal than physics and physics and mathematics. Even if that's true in some sense, it's not to the point. That doesn't make the different sciences. Um, rather, math and natural science are distinct because the no notion of matter enters their definitions in different ways and so gives rise to different degrees of intelligibility. Thus, the universality is found in all the sciences. Right? All sciences deal with the natures of things. Uh, not with the individuals. Um, so, in the, so the abstraction of the universal from the particular, particular can't be the unique, unique mark of any one science and therefore cannot be its defining characteristic. So that's our second preliminary. No, the notion that the sciences are distinguished by the way they define their subjects with sensible matter, without sensible matter, but with intelligible matter, or without any matter at all. Given these preliminaries, we may ask how metaphysics begins. Is it necessary to prove the existence of purely immaterial things before approaching metaphysics? I say yes. Or can we understand things without any matter, even without the doing this? I say no. And if we do need to argue that such things exist, how do we do that? I say in natural philosophy. So the second part of the lecture uh, is about to start. Um, and uh, so the second part is called Metaphysics is After Physics. Some of you may know the word metaphysics means after physics. Um, so you might think you can bypass any argument and about metaphysics, about metaphysical things existing. Um, uh, and go directly to metaphysics because St. Thomas will frequently describe the subject of metaphysics as universal being, being as being, common being. This might lead one to think that there can be a distinct science of metaphysics simply because we have a name, a more universal name, being, more universal than mobile being. 
Moreover, which is a subject in natural philosophy. Moreover, Aristotle even says that we should start with the more general, so metaphysics would not only be possible right away, but even should be the very first philosophy we study, perhaps after logic. The name being certainly does seem to name something more universal than the expression mobile being, which is a subject of natural philosophy. After all, the adjective mobile qualifies and limits the noun being. But we just saw that degrees of universality alone cannot define sciences. So this can't be a path to metaphysics. Moreover, there may be a simple, excuse me, an implicit assumption here, namely, that because there is no overt reference to matter in the meaning of the word being, right, just as we commonly know, we don't see the word matter in there um, in an obvious way, one can immediately grasp that there is a science which transcends matter, one which studies being universally without restricting itself to material being, and that therefore there is a science which has a new mode of definition. Take away mobile and we have left being. So from mobile being, take away the mobile you know, being, uh, which does not seem to depend on matter for its concept. So we might think that. But this is a mistake. It is true that the meaning of the word being does not in include an overt reference to matter, but it does not follow that there really is an immaterial being or even that we can really conceive of it, except as a quid nominis. In the same way we can entertain, the, uh, quid nominis, just in case you don't know, that means the what of the name, right? So it's like the definition you find in the dictionary. Right? Uh, except as a quid nominis, in the same way that we can entertain the notion of greatest prime number, if Aristotle, as Aristotle says, if there is not some other substance besides those constituted by nature, physics would be the first science. For the actual principles of being as such would simply be the principles of mobile being. There would be no new kind of thing to study, and, but at best a new set of names. If natural beings are all that can exist, then potency is simply reducible to matter and its consequences. Act is correlative to matter, being always and only the result of the union of such matter and such form, and unity is convertible with that sort of being. There would be no other principles but those of physical things. There would be neither any new subject to be understood, nor new, any new principles, nor even any new way to understand the old principles. So there's just nothing new there. There's nothing, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be getting anywhere. Thus, it turns out that we may have been too generous when we said that the primitive notion of being was more general than the notion of mobile being. If there are no immaterial beings, then being is not more general. It's just more obscure and a more imperfect way of saying mobile being. On the other hand, if we treat being as if it were applicable to immaterial things without knowing the first thing about them, namely that they exist, we would be resolving to a quid nominis of a mystery a mystery about which we are not even assured that it is not merely the absurd expression of our own ignorance. We have already seen that proceeding on the grounds of terms like these is merely looking at an ens rationis, a being of reason, uh, and that our propositions about them are never about reality but about the relations among our thoughts. If armed only with such knowledge of the meaning of a name, I argue that angels, because they are immaterial, are indi individuated by their forms, I'm no better off than if I argue that hobbits, because they are childlike, would be fit carriers of the ring of power, if there were such a ring. Both statements are true, in fact, but they have no bearing on reality, and it's silly to call such inferences sciences. They are simply true due to the relations between the antecedents and the consequence. The grounding of the antecedent and so of the whole statement in extra mental reality would require that I know that angels or hobbits are actual things and not just figments of my imagination. Thus, unless we can show somehow that immobile beings are really possible natures, metaphysics is only a fancy name for natural philosophy. So what is needed in, for a new science 
is first, a kind of definition that does not include matter as do the definitions of math and physics, and secondly, the knowledge that such things uh, are possible natures. If we can establish that there are such real objects of thought, we will then know that the word being is not only more vague, but has wider application than mobile being, that it is truly more general than mobile being, and that the treatment given to being, one, etc., in natural philosophy is not the most complete one possible. What are the possible routes to such knowledge? I suggest there are four possibilities, only one of which will work. So, let me outline the four quickly. The first is experience. Just like we know dogs exist because we experience them, somebody might say, well, we have direct experience of God, or we have direct experience of the immateriality of our souls. Um, I think that's just not true. Uh, so, so I think brute experience is not going to be a path here. Um, and I would cite in, in, uh, in evidence, I would cite St. Augustine, who uh, in the Confessions says that for years he could not even conceive that immaterial or incorporeal beings were possible. Now, if St. Augustine can't do it, I don't think very many people can. And so uh, it seems to me pretty clear that's not a matter of experience. So, there, so then the other option is to go to something the mind can work out. Um, and there are three possibilities that arise from St. Thomas's division of the acts of the mind into three sorts. Um, the first act of the mind is grasping what a thing is, like what a horse is or what a circle is. This is a simple apprehension in which we may think one thing, but we do not combine our thoughts to form statements or arguments. The second act does unite things together, those simple things together into statements. So like the horse is an animal, or the circle is not an animal, here we find true and false for the first time, but there's no process of going from one statement to another. Right? Um, but we can do that too. We can put the, the two, two thoughts together <laughs> and get an answer. Uh, we can say the horse is an animal, the circle's not an animal, therefore the circle's not a horse. Um, so the therefore statement indicates that there's a new statement that follows from the other ones. That's called an argument, and that's the third act of the mind. Uh, here, one statement called the conclusion is seen to follow from other statements called premises. These three acts of the mind, simple apprehension, forming of statements, and arguing, right, provide a helpful guide to possible routes into metaphysics. I will argue that the first two acts by themselves cannot lead to metaphysics, but the last argumentation, and in particular argumentation within natural philosophy, is a real road to metaphysics. So the first act of the mind, grasping natures. So um, there was an Arabic philosopher named Abim Pace. Uh, his, I guess his name was Ibn Bajah, for real. And in the Summa, St. Thomas quotes him, uh, reports that he held that one could abstract from material things the essences of immaterial things. The argument, his argument, Abim Pace's argument, goes like this, quote, for since our intellect is naturally apt to abstract the quiddity of a material thing from material, if in that quiddity there is again something material, it will be able to abstract again. And since this can't go on for infinity, at length it will be able to arrive at understanding some quiddity which ho is wholly without matter. And this is to understand immaterial substance. So he's saying you can get to the notion of immaterial substance just by abstraction, which is the first act of the mind. St. Thomas's critique of this view is pertinent not only to its refutation but to our general considerations. Here are his words. This would be said efficaciously if immaterial substance were the forms and species of these material things as the Platonists posit. For if we do not posit this, but suppose that immaterial substances are of a wholly other notion from the quiddities of material things, 
So he's saying that they're whole, a wholly other notion from the quiddities of material things. However much our intellect might abstract the quiddity of a material thing from matter, it would never arrive at something similar to immaterial substance. And therefore, we are not able to understand immaterial substances perfectly through material substances. So I think what he's saying there is uh, you cannot abstract the quiddity of an immaterial thing from a material thing simply because it's not there. So you can only draw out of something something that's in it. If the nature of an immaterial thing is not present in the nature of a material thing, then you can't get the nature of the immaterial thing out of the nature of the material thing. So it's like saying, you know, there's an expression, you can't get blood from a turnip. Um, it's, like, it's like that, right? You're kind of saying, you can't get angels out of potatoes, right? They're not, it's not in there. Um, so uh, if immaterial things are of a wholly other nature than material ones, then the notions we get from material things will never be the same as the notions of immaterial things. The upshot is that immaterial things are of such a profoundly different sort from material things that we cannot divine what they are by looking at what is present in material things. Because this is so, the names which we use of immaterial things and of material things, names like being, one, potency, act, and so on, are not univocal, but are analogous, and that's a kind of equivocal, right? So the word definitions wouldn't be the same. The only way they could be univocal is if the natures they named were the same, and if they were the same, then we could abstract the one from the other. St. Thomas even says that the very name quiddity, the name quiddity itself, is equivocal when said of immaterial and material things. He's not just saying they have different quiddities. He's saying the word quiddity doesn't even mean the same thing when you say it of an angel and when you say it of a horse. Quiddity and all such names, he says, are said somewhat equivocally. And the word somewhat there could even be translated very equivocally of sensible things and of those immaterial substances. So it's not obvious from direct experience or from abstraction from direct experience that immaterial substances can exist at all, since we do not have any actual contact, contact with such things by way of our material, our knowledge of material things. We cannot know them to be possible, um, as we have seen, simply by not seeing that they're impossible. That would be like saying that the diagonal of a square could be commensurable with its side, because I don't see that it can't be, can be, or cannot not be, whatever it is. Not seeing a contradiction is not the same as seeing there is no contradiction. And we must often go past the overt meaning of the words we use to see if there's a contradiction or even possibility or necess even necessity, maybe. So, okay, so no, no experience is going to get us to metaphysics. No abstraction is going to get us to metaphysics. What about the second act of the mind, forming statements? That's a position which, if you go to graduate school these days and study uh, to mystic philosophy, you will almost assuredly get at least a professor or two uh, who propose this and hold this position. It's a very popular position in uh, graduate schools. Um, so, so the uh, second act of the mind is forming statements. Uh, and uh, we might think that instead of having a direct experience or abstraction to get to the immaterial, we might think we can, based on direct experience, based on direct experience of the natural world, separate something which transcends matter from the material things in front of us. To quote the man who seems to be the originator of this view, his name's Etienne Gilson, he's a French philosopher, historian of philosophy, very famous. Um, he says this in his book, uh, Being and Some Philosophers, which is a kind of source book for this position. Uh, what comes first is a sensible perception whose object is immediately known by our intellect as being. He specifies that's ends, not essay, so a being. 
And this direct apprehension by a knowing subject immediately releases a twofold and complementary intellectual operation. First, the knowing subject apprehends what the given object is. Next, it judges that the given object is. And this instantaneous recomposition of the existence of given objects with their essences merely acknowledges the actual structure of the objects. So the claim is that the mind seizes a being and ends. That is, that which exists, what has existence in Latin, quad habit essay. And this implies that the mind must see that something exists, which is to see the truth of a judgment. So when we see a being, we say, oh, there's a being, right? It exists. And you say, oh, it exists. That thing exists. So now we've got a statement. That thing exists. And that statement is a true statement. Uh, and I can, in it, separate the notion of the thing that exists from its existence. That's the claim. Okay, so for in grasping the existent thing in front of us, we grasp that it is a thing that exists, or in other words, we grasp that the statement being exists is true. So immediately upon grasping the first object of the mind, which is ends, uh, or being, um, we form the statement that something exists, and this is a judgment, a statement, not the simple abstraction of a nature. So that's why I'm saying it's in the second act of the mind. Um, but in that judgment, we grasp that the thing and its existence Sorry, we grasp both the thing and its existence, and so we can separate in our minds the existence from the thing which enjoys that existence. Thus we form the negative judgment that the thing is not its existence. We recognize, according to the proponents of this theory, that existence is not identical with the material nature uh, in which we recognize it. This negative judgment will then be used to distinguish the subject of metaphysics by claiming in one way or another that it shows the possibility of the existence of immaterial things. Now at this point, uh, different followers of Gilson go different ways, so I'm not gonna go through all of them, but uh, Jacques Maritain is one of the more famous ones. He says this, such objects, transcendentals such as being one, etc., are transsensible, for though they are realized in the sensible in which we first grasp them, they are offered to the mind as transcending every genus and every category and as able to be realized in subjects of a wholly other essence than those in which they are apprehended. It is re extremely remarkable that being, the first object attained by our mind in things, bears within itself the sign that beings of another order than the sensible are thinkable and possible. I just think that's false. Um, he, he says elsewhere a little more explicitly, he says, in other words, in the unique case of the intuition of being, that's what he calls this process, the intuition of being, and you'll hear that everywhere. Uh, the concept, this concept of the essay, formed after I have seen it, is second in respect to the judgment of existence, where and in which, while pronouncing existence in itself, my intelligence has seen the essay. This concept is owing to a reflective return of simple apprehension upon the judicative act in question. Excellent. Um, so, what's that supposed to mean? Uh, I think what he's saying is that we see a being, we see that it exists, we see the statement being exists is true. We separate the notion of being from the notion that it exists, from the existence that it has, right? And then we see, oh, the thing that's, the thing that's existing, right, is the material thing. But the existence is not the material thing, it's another thing, and it doesn't have to be material, right? And I even see, he thinks, that it can be not material. So he says immediately after the text I cited, Marita adds that this is only the recognition of a possibility, that we would need to have some, quote, reasoning from the data actually given to us in sensible experience to know that there actually are such immaterial things, in fact. Right? So he's saying, I only see the possibility, I don't see the real. But he does think he sees the possibility. 
Nevertheless, for Maritain, the full latitude of the possibilities of being is immediately established, and we are set to begin metaphysics, because we need to know about possible natures. Right? Other followers of Gilson, here I'm thinking of Father Dewan, who teaches at CUA, hold that since, uh, not Dewan, excuse me, Father Whipple, um, that since existence is a separate intelligible object, not the same as the material essence it actualizes, and so not in its very notion already material, we can judge by a separation that non-material being is possible. In other words, since we can distinguish between what a thing is and that it is, the question, what is it, is not the same as the question, does it exist? Therefore, the two questions can be addressed independently. The proponents of this position say that the notion of existence is intelligible without a consideration of what particular sort of thing is existing, so that while existence is presented to us in immaterial things, we can recognize that it need not be in, immaterial, be in material things. Thus, we have the separation from matter necessary to begin metaphysics. The separation, that is, the negative statement which grounds metaphysics is not some real thing is not material, but rather something like existence is not a material essence. But however one analyzes the claim that we're aware of the reality or even the possibility of immaterial things based merely on what we see in our encounter with the physical world, the claim can't be true. Any such claim necessarily implies saying that the initial experience of the material world intrinsically contains, that is, not by way of an argument, but intrinsically contains a sufficient motive for thinking there can be a material being. And this is false. The judgment only shows that material being is possible and real. The problem is the same old one. We think because we see no problem that there is no problem, as if our intellect, with its flickering light, is the measure of all things. Because when I say being is, I do not seem to posit anything material. I think I am thereby permitted to say that being or existence, can, that's ends or essay, can in fact be coherently thought of apart from matter. But the judgment in question only refers to the sort of being and existence we see in the material world. It says nothing whatever about any other sort of being unless we see an example, excuse me, unless we see an example of a certain sort of thing actually before us or can prove that given what we do see, that sort of thing must be we may simply be mistaking ignorance for knowledge, mistaking our inability to see an absurdity with the presence of a possibility. To belabor a point, the fact that we do not see that a thing is impossible does not mean that we see that it's possible. More particularly, it's commonplace in St. Thomas that the existence of a material thing arises, in some sense, from the union of form and matter. A statue comes to be when a sculptor puts shape into clay, and a man comes to be when the soul, the form of the body, is joined to the body. Whether one thinks this is all there is to it, or one thinks that such a union is only presupposed to the existence of the material thing, it remains that existence in material things is intimately linked to the union of form and matter, that it is either the same thing as that union, or is the act of what is so united. In either case, being and essence, existence are said equivocally of material and immaterial being so that the existence of material things is really different uh, from the uh, existence of immaterial beings. Since, so we cannot know from seeing the sort found in the material that the sort found in the immaterial is possible, let alone actual. When we remove from our notion one of the principles of material being and existence, namely matter, we may be left with nothing but a self-contradiction, though we might not be aware of that fact. I might as well say that because my first idea of water does not include hydrogen, I'm going to have a science of hydrogen-free water. So now on to the third act of the mind, 
Okay, so argument. So this is where I think you can get to metaphysics. Since the evidence of things unseen, that is the evidence for the immaterial, is not found in experience or in the first or second acts, it must be available, if it is available by nature at all, it must be found in the third act of the mind, namely argument. But what kind of an argument will do the trick? The argument in question must assure us of the real possibility of immaterial things. The problem with some of the views we've been considering, maybe you'd say all of them, is just that they assume the possibility of immaterial being based on the mere fact that they don't see any impossibility. The insufficiency of these views indicates that we need to base our argument on knowledge of something which we know is really possible. But we only really know something's possible in one of two ways. Either we see the thing in question in our experience or we see that what is in our experience necessarily implies the thing in question. Thus, if what we experience in sensation is really possible, which it obviously is, because it's in front of us, it's actual, <clears throat> then what is implied by that experience is also necessarily really possible. In fact, it too must be actual. We must start with the material mobile being around us and by way of an argument prove that they could not be, the material, be material mobile beings could not be the way they are if immaterial beings did not exist. We must argue from the effects found in the natural world to the existence of their immaterial causes. Why? For we must begin from what we know and go to what we don't know. That's a general principle. Everybody's going to grant that. And what we first know is the nat natural object of our mind. Because color, this is just a, an analogy to cite here, because color is the proper formal object of the eye, we see everything else by way of seeing color, as we see a motion by seeing color, and we see a man by seeing color, and we see a shape by seeing color. Following Aristotle, St. Thomas says that the proper object of the human mind is the quiddity of material things, that what, what the mind naturally knows or what material things are. It doesn't mean we know them perfectly, and in definition, we don't have perfect definitions of them, but we certainly know that they're material things, for example, and that's essential to them. So we know something of their essence, even if we don't know it perfectly. Um, so if so, if the quiddity, proper object of the human mind is the quiddity of material things, uh, then um, we can't know anything except by way of knowing material things, just as we can't see anything except by way of seeing color. In the commentary on the sentences, St. Thomas says, quote, our intellect is not proportioned to knowing something by natural knowledge except through sensibles. Therefore, it is not able to arrive at pure intelligibles except by arguing. So he's, he's explicitly saying you can only get to the intelligible, the pure intelligible, which, by which he means immaterial things. You can only get to those things by an argument. He's say, saying it in so many words here. Okay, the arguments in question will end in negative judgments to the effect that this or that is not a material being, but their beginnings, the beginnings of the arguments, will be an understanding of the mobile beings which we directly experience. Further, the arguments upon which we base our metaphysics will be based on causes which are outside of their effects, extrinsic causes. Some causes, such as matter and form, are inside the things they cause, as a man's soul and body are within him and are causes of him. But other sorts of causes are outside of their effects. The agent cause, the final cause, and the exemplar cause. By the exemplar, I mean like the model, you know, you, this is a statue, it's a statue of Napoleon. Why is it a statue of Napoleon? Because it looks like Napoleon, right? It's the, the shape of Napoleon, the shape of Napoleon's face, let's say, is the model, the exemplar, and it's due to the shape, that, that shape, that this other shape in the stone is a statue of Napoleon. 
So agent cause, final cause, and exemplar causes are like this. The blueprint that the house builder uses, the purpose which motivates him to build the house, and the house builder himself are all extrinsic to the house he builds. These are the sorts of things we must look for because we have seen that material things do not harbor immaterial being within them. This is precisely why all other paths to metaphysics were discovered to be futile. We must find an argument which ties what is present within the material things around us to their extrinsic causes, which turn out to be immaterial things, the immaterial things we seek to know. Moreover, the link must be a necessary one. If it is not necessary, we will not begin our science with the certitude necessary for science, for knowing that the subject is real is a necessary precondition of a science. We are looking then for a demonstration, which begins from some effect found in mobile beings, and which shows us that the sort of effect necessarily, that that sort of effect, something in the mobile being, necessarily implies the existence of an immaterial being. So if the natures are not in the mobile beings themselves, the immaterial natures are not in the immobile, uh, excuse me, the material beings themselves, I can't get it out of them. I can't get it out of them by abstraction. I can't, I can't see it by experience, and I can't see it by a statement, or just a, a pure statement, because that's only going to say what's present in front of me. Right? So, so if, if I can't get the immaterial natures out of them uh, because they're not in them intrinsically, the only way to come to the immaterial will be from the material, since that's what I know first. I have to start there will be from the material, but by way of an argument from extrinsic causality, from some, some, somehow seeing that this thing over here couldn't be without that thing over there being, even though that other thing is not in this thing. Such an argument is proposed by Aristotle in the physics. Aristotle there argues that there must be a first mover and that this first mover must have an infinite power, for no body can have an infinite power. He ar tries to argue for each of those premises. We draw the negative conclusion then that the first mover is not material. This is the separation or negative judgment that St. Thomas has in mind when he says that what characterizes metaphysics is separation, namely the statement that the first mover is immaterial or is not material, to put it negatively. Um, he himself implies, St. Thomas himself imply, implies that that's the, that's the kind of thing he has in mind when he says more than once that those who have not discovered such an argument fail to attain the threshold of metaphysics. So he says that at least four places I can think of in the commentary of the metaphysics. So, okay, so that's basically, I think I've argued my case. Um, I've argued that uh, is, uh, you have to have knowledge has to be about real things and you have to know, know that they're real. Um, and that those are preliminaries. And in order to have metaphysics, you have to have a science that deals with the immaterial, a thing defined without any matter at all. Um, you can't get to that from the material because it's not in the material. Not can, you can't get to it, I should say, by just looking at what's present within the material. So therefore, you have to use some kind of mode of thought which gets you from what's intrinsic to what's extrinsic. That's got to be argument. It can't be any of the other modes of thought. So it has to be an argument, and it has to be an argument in natural philosophy, because the things we know first are material things. Those are the only things we know for sure exist uh, at the start. So here's the conclusion. The principle at work throughout this lecture has been this, act is before potency. If we are to come to know, the knowledge we seek must be based on some actual pre-existent knowledge. But our actual knowledge is originally knowledge of material things. This is implied by saying that the proper object of the human intellect is the quiddity or the whatness of material things. 
Because the mind attains as its proper object the quiddity of material things, we know everything we know starting from these quiddities. Since the being of an immaterial and material realities is only analogously and therefore only equivocally one, the name being doesn't mean the same thing in the two cases, we must get from the material to the immaterial by a necessary link, but one which appeals from what is actually present in the material things to what is not so present, that is to say, a link which is founded on some form of extrinsic causality. In other words, the only way to see the material as implying the immaterial is by recognizing that the material being needs immaterial principles or causes outside themselves just to be the things they are. Neither the first nor the second act of the mind nor experience is sufficient for these, for these only reveal what is actually present when the, within the object named or spoken of. But we need the third act of the mind, and in particular arguments from effect to cause, to establish the reality of immaterial beings. Having seen that reality, we of course recognize that there are real immaterial natures to be considered. And once we see that, we understand that there must be another science more universal than natural science, and that's the science of being as such, or metaphysics. Thank you.